Welcome listeners to another great episode of the Anti-Racist Educator podcast. Um, I'm Hashem. It's nice to have you all here again. Um, navigating weird times. Hope you're all well, keeping safe, keeping healthy. Um, with us today is another really interesting and important individual doing work in racism in Scotland. Um, it is Kareem Mitha. Hi Kareem, how are you? Hi Hashem, I'm great. Thanks uh, for being able to do this chat today. It's really great to be able to do this. Thank you. Yeah, it was, it was good. I, I heard you on the, I think for the first time on the Surviving Society podcast a few, right. a few months back. So it would be good to kind of get your perspective on this and also talk a bit about the Scottish context as well. Um, just to start off, could you tell us a bit about yourself and the work you're doing at the moment? Sure. So I'm a specialty registrar in public health, which, as uh, I guess you can imagine right now, means my workload is kind of crazy intense dealing with uh, this pandemic. Um, that's basically my uh, day job. And I also uh, teach at the um, Edinburgh Medical School and Masters of Public Health, um, more on the social determinant side of things. So by social determinants, we mean looking at the influence of wider systems and processes in place, so like effects of housing, effects of air quality, effects of like socioeconomic status. So I look at the influences of that on people's health and well-being. Um, I'm writing up my PhD right now at the University of Glasgow uh, Sociology. So you may have spoken to my colleague Samina in that department. Um, so we were supervised by the late Neil Davidson, and that's sort of how I got influenced in sort of looking at this aspect of race and mental health. It's not something I anticipated um, to find, to be honest, when I started my work with the Muslim community here. But um, over the course of my research, it sort of just came to be a really important theme. And especially now when we're in this COVID situation and we realize the effect of um, what we call ethnic health inequalities. And we can see, wow, that's just really come to a limelight right now. Great. So could you could you tell us then about that research? Tell us what what are you looking at? What's your focus? Because it's because the little snippets there were were really interesting. And I know in our chat before we we're talking about racism and mental health, but yeah, yeah. So what what are you looking at? So essentially, I'm looking at um, so I'm working with Muslims in Scotland. I have been working with with um, Muslims in Scotland for a while now, and it's interesting being someone from within the community myself, being someone that's visibly Muslim, and I think that's. Um, I wanted to look at, because mental health is something that we, is, tends to be quite stigmatized within our communities, and we know that's a big issue. Um, and I think the latest data that came from House of Parliament in sort of February of this year showed that actually Muslims have the lowest recovery rate when we go to mental health services. So we're not uh, improving. There's something that's holding us back. There's something that we're not, um, if we go into care, we're not seeing the same levels of outcomes as you would to other population groups. So I'm kind of interested to explore why that is. So there's lots of theories that could be, is it an issue of cultural competency? Could it be issues of like, um, um, experiences of treatment when in care? Could it be sort of wider factors in terms of access, not wanting to even go to see someone until later stages? There was a piece of work that was done by the Edinburgh Migration and Ethnicity Health Research Group in 2015-2014, which said that people from, I guess, Muslim backgrounds or Asian backgrounds, and I'll uh, explain um, that we need to delineate those two because often those are conflated. Um, but people from those backgrounds tend to present at later stages and a greater severity, which means they're not seeing help um, when they could be at earlier stages. So are there processes of stigma which is involved? Is there issues of honor and sort of cultural taboo? 
So with my work, I've been doing uh, qualitative interviews and I've spoken with uh, Muslim religious leaders. I've spoken with um, Muslim clinicians and people with lived experiences of mental ill health. I've been very broad in that scope because I thought it's really important rather than imposing labels onto people, it's important if people sort of identify with experiences of distress and then ex and then I would have a chat with them to say, well, can you explain to me your experiences of this? What is What would you say are barriers in accessing care and why? So that's sort of, I've been doing that qualitative groundwork research with our Muslim community uh, up in Scotland, trying to understand these issues of how do um, this data or the lack of data rather manifests itself in terms of these experiences of uh, mental health inequalities. And how, um how has the research been going so far? And like, um, yeah, in the writing and stuff. It's yeah. So I'm actually in the writing of phase just now. Um, so my data collection is basically done. I thought that I mean, in the context of the work that I can do, I, I managed to get quite a lot of um, respondents coming forward for the qualitative um, elements of it, and I've actually been surprised. Um, by that because I you know being like a singular person doing research not on a huge grant or like just being like a PhD person that's writing up I've actually been surprised by the receptivity of the community and to me that's that's quite striking because on the on the one hand yes there have been those who've said well um, who've been very flippant actually and who've said things like well we don't have these issues in our community or everybody has mental health nowadays which is a bit of a problem but on the other hand, those who've actually participated in my work, it's I feel very honored for them to have participated and saying, well, look, here are the issues that we're experiencing. And what I have found particularly striking is the their experiences, which don't seem to echo the, the literature to a large extent. I mean, we always have this myth of Caledonian exceptionalism, which I think we'll, we'll talk about later on and saying that, um, oh, Scotland is this post-racial society, we don't really have issues of like uh, racism here or Islamophobia here, and you know, this idea of civic nationalism, basically, and one Scotland means everyone's treated the same. But you know, I think the fact that you, as anti-racist educator, the very fact that you have an organization like this shows that there is a need to be discussing issues of race inequality. And that's something that's come up um, particularly amongst um, several of my respondents actually. It's not, it's not everyone and it's not across the board, but it's really interesting to see how these experiences of racism, Islamophobia are socially patterned by different, um, different people and reflecting on their own positionality. So is it uh, someone who um, is a working class Muslim or a male, or is it a woman who wears a hijab, but in a very prominent position? Um, and I think even if you look at them, their experiences within Islamophobia in the Scottish context, I found very interesting. So that's sort of why I've been um, exploring the race angle more in my work, because I think that it's very, it'd be very reductive uh, to exclude that and almost like whitewashing the literature in a way, uh, whitewashing the data in a way if you don't uh, examine that experience of this effect of racism slash Islamophobia on people's mental health and well-being. Yeah, I mean, like, I think it's essential in that, like, race like, is woven through Scottish life in every single mm. way, in every single setting. And thinking as a teacher and thinking how racism might work in more implicit ways and not in the kind of explicit in-your-face ways, it kind of makes you, makes you think, like, how much is getting missed out by just in my own setting, I can just think about teachers not picking up on signs in kids and families 
and maybe blaming some, I don't know, health outcomes on like culture or on some inevitability about a way certain people live and not thinking, okay, maybe there's actually, you know, this family might not be engaging with what we're offering them for lots of different reasons and it's not their own fault. Yeah, and I think it's interesting you mentioned schools, exactly that. And I think it's a huge problem because, um, so I would say that if we don't have an issue of Islamophobia in Scotland, why did it take Samina Dean to come up with an idea of doing a survey of children in Edinburgh schools to look at experiences of that? And then she found out that report that was published. And I think that the fact that she, uh, uh, you know, a mother uh, from within the Muslim community had to go out and do this work herself because of the experiences that her child was facing in school, yet in contrast to this view that says we don't have Islamophobia in Scotland, I think, well, here are two conflicting messages that go on. And it's interesting that you mentioned the experiences of students in schools because again I've heard this in the course of my work where people were saying that well why is it that we have to write a letter to our child's head teacher by saying no we're not forcing them to wear the hijab or that my child is fasting out of a choice and I think this is something that is um, I'm, I've been puzzled by that but and I'm struck by how this tends to be people's lived experience of uh, rearing children in a Scottish environment and I actually would give an example right now of um, we know that um, with COVID going on and children, um, people being back to unis and being in student halls, and I don't was a Muslim student who was in a university halls of residence who noted that she was Muslim and had dietary restrictions, but the food that she was being given was bacon and ham sandwiches. And I just think that really shows this idea of lack of cultural competency, lack of cultural awareness, and it maybe it's maybe not blatant racism as such but that surely that can be seen as a microaggressive environment even cultural ignorance to be honest and it's 2020 why are we like not even aware people have different dietary restrictions it's, it's very baffling to me yeah i mean these these new restrictions being brought in because of the pandemic are going to not have a kind of symmetric effect mm. on all people it's not going to be the same effects being felt by everyone I think we've seen that in the kind of infection rates and, and death rates. Like I'm more familiar with down south, to be honest, but I can imagine the same phenomenons are happening. Phenomena are happening here in Scotland also. I'm not entirely sure about the data that's been brought out or reports, but it must be like that. Um, so could you could you talk to us a bit about maybe about the, the links between racism and mental health, and about how racism can have adverse effects? on people's mental health because yeah, so, uh, yeah. almost a common sense thing but it'd be great to hear your perspective on it and like how it actually works i mean you think it would be common sense but i've also been asked what does racism have to do with mental health so it really shows that maybe it's not as common sense as we like to think common it sense is for us yes <laughs> Uh -huh. Yes, for us as people of color who experience this on a daily basis, I think for us it's something that's well known. But I think that then the issue then becomes like, how do you talk about it to sort of mainstream white um, people essentially? Um, and I think it's really important at this stage to talk about definitions. So I may bore you here, but I think it's really important to talk about these definitions and how things, uh, these variables can be operationalized. So we know that race is a social construct. It's just based on phenotypic characteristics and it's based on these phenotypes uh, so people's essentially their skin color that you're assuming or ascribing differences based on that. Ethnicity is not the same as race. Ethnicity is about a social group who has a shared cultural history, uh, values, diet, religion, culture, and customs. So I, I find it very annoying when I hear of a, 
ethnic group being called Black African because that makes no sense, or even an ethnic group being called Asian because we know there's so many different uh, ethnic groups within South Asia. So that literally makes no sense, but these are the terms that we use. And when we find, when we look for evidence in the literature, these are the groupings that are being used. So if you look in sort of the medical literature, the health literature, you're saying, well, uh, certain groups or Asian or Black are being seen to have X, Y, and Z health outcomes. But I don't think that necessarily delineates different population groups really well. Um, because you're not able to see, like, we know that um, within the Asian group, if you take that, for example, we know that Indians, um, well, people who love within this Indian ethnic group tend to do better socioeconomically and have better health than those who come from Pakistani and Bangladeshi backgrounds. And often the assumption is, oh, well, there's something about that, or maybe it's just Pakistanis or just Bangladeshis, but actually we need to consider that these people have different migratory histories, different uh, levels of experience of deprivation, different uh, access to socioeconomic opportunities. So there's an element of class that's being patterned onto these so-called ethnic differences. Um, and when we consider racialization, and I think this is important because the uh, pushback if we want to talk about Islamophobia, is that Islam is not a race, so then people cannot experience racism. But if we look at how racialization takes place, that's how people are becoming essentially put into different social groups based on these observed differences or attributions based on the sense of other. So it's very striking that the all-party parliamentary group in November 2018, in their definition of Islamophobia, said that Islamophobia is rooted in racism, and it's a type of racism that targets expressions of Muslimness or perceived Muslimness. And this is really important because it shows that um, how people perceive you to be could have an impact on how they treat you. And that could be seen in a racist manner. Um, and if you want to talk about sort of race inequalities, I mean, there's, there's tons of research in this. So again, I talked about the influence of socioeconomic status on this. I talked about how there's issues of systemic racism. I think it's striking that um, even you mentioned this impact of COVID. So how people were still talking about, oh, could it be due to genes or vitamin D when there's literally no evidence base for that um, in the Public Health England report. Um, in Scotland, I know we have issues because of the smaller population group of ethnic minorities. It's often um, difficult to get data based on ethnicity uh, because to disaggregate it would mean you get down to smaller numbers. But if you look at, say, England, we can see that often these things are very uh, socioeconomically patterned. So we know that people from racialized backgrounds um, experience greater levels of um, socioeconomic disadvantage, are more likely to live in overcrowded homes, like more likely to experience precarious employment, um, more likely to experience a greater exposure to health hazards. So they're more, li more likely to be in front-facing roles, have less, and um, yeah, front-facing roles. Um, they have less power in their workplace, so they may not be able to access, uh, to work from home, may not be able to access things like uh, greater exposure to PPE. Some of them may be on visas, and we know with this hostile environment that there's almost a fear factor for people who are on visas to question um, their achievement in a workplace because their employer could basically say, well, we're not going to hire you, and then they end up being deported. Um, so you can imagine this is the environment that people of color are living in. We know that um, there's a, a piece of work that was done by Lyle um, in 2016, who says that if you are a, from an ethnic minority household in Scotland, you're twice as likely to be born into a workless household, a household that's deprived and a household that's overcrowded. And Nasser Mir has says that um, 
these so-called ethnic penalties actually impact you throughout your life course. So you're, we know there's, um, I mean, Hashim, you know this as a teacher, that people of color um, students tend to get marked down in school, so more less likely to be achieving these grades of 2-1 or first, and when they're in university settings, the way that they're treated there. Um, and then we know that particularly for Muslims, um, Muslim populations in Scotland, despite having higher levels of educational attainment, they actually experience greater levels of economic adversity, greater levels of underemployment, greater levels of unemployment. So this shows how systemic biases and these so-called patterns of disadvantage uh, permeate uh, throughout the life course. Um, and if you want to talk about specific aspects of racism and mental health, there's been substantial work by um, Dinesh Bhagran Kambui looking at this, saying that um, marginalization and discrimination impacts people's well-being. Um, if you look at the so-called Black African or Black Caribbean populations, being from a Black background means you're more likely to be sectioned, more likely to be de more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia, more likely to enter the mental health system at a later stages. Um, so this is already showing how race can almost be a detriment. Um, because of the views of racism. So it's not race as such, but the, he, here are the impacts of racism. We know that uh, the way that your, uh, your living conditions, your access to green space, all these things are influenced by wider systemic processes. Um, yeah, and I think this is something that really needs to be considered. And it's not something that's unknown. This is something that NHS Health Scotland noted in 2008 that, you know, when people enter mental health systems, do we actually have any cultural competence here? And they've said in 2008, we don't have it. And here we are in 2020, 12 years later, and we're still having the same conversations. So I think it's really important to understand how these elements of uh, systemic racism, the McPherson report noted how racism is institutionalized. And McPherson report was done in 1999. And so he, again, 2020, we're still having these same conversations. Has the goalpost, has the needle been moved in at all? Mm -hmm. I think these, like, as you just very comprehensively done there, the, 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 the layers of racial trauma run so deep and wide and affect racialized peoples in, like, every setting, obviously. And, yeah, it's kind of baffling to see how, how little movement has been made when, like, the problems have been recognised for a long, long time, both here in the States and England. But, it, yeah, it kind of baffles me how we've just not done anything about it. Um, I think like um, I wanted to look in more about the experiences of people when they try to access mental health provision. Mm. Like, and I'm just thinking about like my own family and my own community and thinking like they're probably already on at a back foot or on the back foot because of I think maybe to use a kind of Bourdieuian perspective, they don't have that kind of habitus or the kind of life skills and culture that is compatible with the setting of hospitals or surgeries. And in quite the same way that people who um, come into schools don't align with the culture of teachers and therefore you're going to get like, a, a worse experience for you and your kids and I, I can just I, I suspect the same thing will be happening when it comes to healthcare so like what what is it actually like when people who who are racialized do start to try to access mental health 
profession. What yeah, I, I think this is something that's uh, quite a concern, to be honest. And again, I don't know if you've seen this report by the British Islamic Medical Association very recently. They did a piece of work with Huffington Post UK. They looked at Islamophobia experienced by um, clinicians, and they found that very strikingly. Uh, clinicians who were visibly Muslim were experiencing levels of racism and Islamophobia in the workplace settings. This is within the NHS. So you can imagine that if these are people who are supposedly, you know, um, uh, I guess middle class because essentially being clinicians working in environments where you would think that people would be treated equitably um, and experiencing levels of Islamophobia, you can imagine what impact this may have on people who have lower levels of social and cultural capital. Um, what experiences they may be uh, having when they're trying to say access education. Um, there's this very pejorative term which is used um, and it's called Mrs. Beebe syndrome. And that's basically this idea of how Asian patients tend to present by being malingering. They present by what we call somatization. So they're um, saying things that they've got non-specific headaches, aches and pains, they're feeling very tired. They're not, because they're not using these words of I feel depressed. And even if we know that in Islam, to even this concept of suicide is, is forbidden. So if you're someone were to even say that they feel suicidal, they may not say that. So you'd be, they could be using other non-specific terms. But if they present it to, um, to this a clinician who, who can't find any sort of organic cause to the illness and then being labeled as having Mrs. Beebe syndrome, that's almost very pejorative. And that's maybe a reason why people may not want to go. Um, and yeah, to be I able to access that—that that is a—that is a terrible term. Oh my god! Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh and god. so this is so you can see how this can impact people's ability to access to uh, access to care. And I think you mentioned um, you thinking about how your own family would view things. And I think understanding issues of mental health within Muslim communities involves looking at things from two levels. So you need to look at it from sort of the wider systemic level, but often from the intracultural level. So do we even talk about issues of mental health and well-being in our own communities? How is that framed? We know that there's strong concepts of honor and stigma and shame. And what is the impact if you were to say someone of your own family member or even you yourself was experiencing mental distress? Often um, it ends up being that we should just cope with it. We should just put up with it. Um, we shouldn't go to seek help because that often will bring shame on the family's honor. So these are something that's really ingrained. And often looking at, well, would we go and seek uh, help for mainstream support or would we go to like a Hakim or uh, Imam or would we go to like um, someone who to do Rukia um, or so could it be done by a jinn? So these are cultural concepts which can often um, not, not necessarily impede people's access to care, but they could be seen as another explanatory mechanism as to why people may not access mainstream services uh, quite readily. Because that this element of let's um, use the vernacular and concepts with which we're, we're familiar. So in a South Asian Muslim context, this is gonna be where we're gonna talk about things like Nazar, we're gonna talk about like Ayn, we're gonna talk about um, jinns because this is our sort of cultural formulation and cultural understanding of these conditions. Um, and I think there's also, it's important to bear in mind that um, you mentioned what happens when people access care. So based on my respondents, I've had, you know, um, spoken to people who've experienced mental health distress and their experiences, to be frank, haven't been very honest. I uh, haven't been very great, rather. Um, one of them said to me that she would never go see a psychotherapist again based on how she was treated 
by that person. Just this element of blaming everything on your culture, blaming everything on like, are you going to have a forced marriage? Are you going, if you are in a family holiday to Pakistan, are they going to, are you going, are they going to perform FGM on you? Like these are the assumptions which can take place. Um, elements of racism. So, um, I know one person told me that this experience of constant racism, constantly having to explain yourself, grinds you down. Um, so the elements of subtle racism, the, uh, the microaggressive environments of not being taken seriously in a workplace, of this constant feeling of people telling you that you don't belong. Um, and so there's a concept in psychology of what we call an allostatic load, which basically means people can cope with certain things to a certain level, but it often just weighs down on you. So this added uh, sort of psychological uh, burden keeps adding. So you can imagine if you're experiencing, you know, issues with your visa or if you're experiencing issues with uh, trying to find a job and no one hiring you. And we know that if you're, if you have a black and ethnic minority sounding name, you have to put in more applications to actually get hired. So you have this idea of like, you've, you've gone through the school system, you've, um, but uh, you've gone through the school system, you've tried to find a job, you're not getting it. You, you do find a job and they ask you to like make a coffee or if they, that you don't know how to speak English or that you don't know how to write emails or even things, basic things like this, which people do know how to do. There's an assumption you don't know how to do this. So this constant having to prove yourself, um, people telling me that they feel sad and they want to cry like literally all the time on a daily basis. Um, and, you know, these things weigh down on people and they do have a impact on people's health and well-being. Um, and I kind of want to bring in this element of uh, prevent because I think that as Muslims, there's a huge suspicion under Muslim communities right now. Like as I talked about in the Surviving Society podcast, this idea of how Muslims are positioned as a fifth column um, they're more likely to, uh, we know the prevent and contest and all, uh, all these things are being seen as supposedly anti-radicalization, but, uh, and we'll, maybe we'll talk about this later in the podcast, but I think when we look at how people want to manifest a sense of empowerment, this can be in, this, uh, in the sense of maybe I'm going to do something that makes me feel empowered. So maybe for women, it's wearing a hijab, for men, maybe it's growing a beard, maybe it's being comfortable in their sense of self and who they are. But when they do this in a public institutional setting, you can imagine that, oh my goodness, this person has all of a sudden um, decided to show a marker of religious identity. Does that mean that they're becoming radicalized? And if you can imagine that the way that these systems are linked up, so the fact that if you were go to see your GP and someone's asked, and they were to ask you, well, how do you cope? And your answer is, well, I go to the masjid, I pray, I read the Quran, can you imagine what a red flag this might cause? Like, uh oh, patient um, admits reading the Quran five times a day or something like that. That could be seen as a marker of radicalization. So, again, you're implementing barriers, you're putting in processes in place, which is going to put people off who may want care, but then this is the, re uh, the reception they're receiving um, when, they, when they go, or even in their day-to-day -day workplaces. So, you can see, like, even how people's everyday experiences of um, so Andy Smith talks about racism in the everyday. So how do you, your daily encounters, if you go to the, uh, to the off-license store and someone calls you like a P-word or N-word. And so these are just encounters of the everyday and how these manifest people's uh, everyday experiences. And, and the everyday really should be somewhere that's like safe, um, but it, it can be very traumatic for people. Yeah, I think it is, yeah, wow, you just like, ran through so many things. I think Preven was one thing that was going through my mind before and about how 
everyone's been turned into an agent of the state almost yeah everyone has been tasked with keeping their eyes open for this you know ready-made image of a conservative looking muslim or really any muslim really but there's some markers that set you apart more like the hijab you were saying go to the mosque having a beard like me i've been assumed to be like a, a conservative muslim but i'm not at all like yeah 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 i don't really practice but yeah. it's something that i have to can like kind of contend with and often like fight against and it's, it's it's all these things that you're talking about that really get me so annoyed and like angry when people use the labels like hard to reach yeah yeah they're hard to reach because they won't engage with us and what does that mean engaging with all of this crap yeah and all the racism that they experience when they get there it's almost seen as like a prerequisite you need to go through the motions and go through all this trauma and stress to access a service which is almost unwilling to be self-reflective and as you're saying for the past 12 years there hasn't been any change baffling there's this yeah. so many layers this is this is what so this is what people. <laughs> so many yeah you're exactly right because i when i started my phd research and this was something people were like i mean it's great that you're coming here and doing this work but we've had these conversations 10 15 years ago so how am i supposed to know because again we don't see this in the literature we don't see this in the evidence base there's there's nothing barely anything there and i think um you made some really astute points, actually, uh, about how this presumption of the way you're racialized as a Muslim, even though you may not practice. So if you were to actually um, look for literature which talks about different religious groups and ethnic, there's an assumption of, like, oh, I would call a conflation, rather, of looking at um, religious identity versus religiosity. And there's an assumption that, particularly for people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds, they're all going like, to act the same, look the same, everything. So if you look at measures of standardized scales of how um, people's identity is measured, it's all based on this performance and performativity of religiosity. So oftentimes, like, how often do you um, pray? How oftentimes do you go to the mosque? How oftentimes do you uh, read the Quran? Do you fast during Ramzan? All these, all these things, which I guess are could be considered, yes, this is within an Islamic paradigm, the, the five pillars is what you need to do, but there's an assumption there that everybody will follow it to the letter, not everybody does. And at the same time, there's an ignorance that people's identity could often be sociopolitical rather than religious. So you could feel Muslim based because this is your background. You come from an ethnic heritage that is follows a Muslim tradition, but that, is, that doesn't necessarily mean you are the most like fastidious, highest person conservative or or contrary you could be you could be like um very um conservative in appearance but actually have very liberal quote-unquote liberal views of equality of gender of that women should be working etc so i think there's a it's a huge problem when we look at how knowledge of muslims is produced how it's constructed and i i do find it quite frustrating to be perfectly frank of how this view of like well you know, as middle-class white academics going in and saying, well, you know, I've interviewed 10 Muslims and none of them say Islamophobia happens, so therefore it doesn't happen. And then they're going to be published and you have, like, it's, it's so frustrating because we have so many people in Scotland. We've got 
Jeff Palmer, Jackie Kay. We've got so many people talking about, um, I mean, your, your Sammy, we've got like Sarah's, we've got Ray said, people talking, uh, people of color, academics saying, well, actually, hold on. We need to actually consider these views of um, people's experiences of, of race. And we need to understand that these reductive views are not, necessarily people's experiences um and so i've i've just basically told you that you can't conflate religiosity with religious identity um yet this is often what you find so it doesn't necessarily speak to everyone and this is why there's almost um this gap in the evidence base because policies are based on what they find in the literature and if they don't find anything then they're not going to act on it and so you need to talk about how gatekeeping is entrenched at various levels and at uh, the sort of the system-wide approaches to race mm. i think yeah like that production of knowledge is so central to how for example the muslim com communities as you say are being like held back and being seen as from what i can see and feel that i haven't grown up in glasgow and stuff as almost a model minority because people tend to compare Muslims in Scotland to Muslims in like the north of England and people will look at the riots that happened in Bradford and stuff in the late in the early 2000s <laughs> and yeah. like the same things haven't happened here and we see yeah. Muslim entrepreneurs we see lots of yeah. high profile Muslims like Hamza Yusuf um, Anna Sarwar and stuff yeah making it to high places so maybe there's something about Scotland, as you said at the, at the beginning, that Scottish exceptionalism that has provided an environment in which these minorities can, can succeed. And I can remember talking to uh, my pal Scarlett Harris, who's also yeah, yeah. doing great PhD work in yeah. experiences of anti-racist activists in Glasgow and Manchester. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's done some really good writing on... Um, this kind of literature and one book that I remember talking about with her and she wrote a really great piece on was Muslims in Scotland. The making of oh, yes, Scarlett, I think, I mean, I've worked with Scarlett and we're, we're in the same cohort, so it's fantastic. I, I really love her work and I think, I know what you're talking about, like, um, I think it's Stefano Bonino's work and I, I, do, I know Stefano personally and I, I know he's a great guy, but I think this really speaks to this idea of positionality as well when you're doing research. Um, I think oftentimes if you're coming from a minority background, you may be more attuned um, as to what's going on or people may tell you different things that they may not necessarily tell someone. So I, I use this example, like if you're going to someone's house, if you have like guests coming over, you're always going to put on a, a, a front for them. You're going to make sure your house is clean. You're going to make sure that everybody's nice and interaction and I mean none of the family drama is actually visible to other people but if there's someone they can see cousin coming in they know you so they, they don't you, you don't really care what they see so you often tend to be a little bit more um open and I've, I've I think to me as a scholar that's visibly Muslim I feel this may have impacted uh, a little bit on my findings but also you mentioned Scarlett Scarlett as a woman also has experiences which I don't have so she may have access to um as her experience as, as a woman, she would have this idea of gender as added to that uh, positionality. So I think sometimes you're able to get things, um, information out there. And I think it's interesting that her book, uh, so in the book that she critiques in her article in Race and Class, she talks about how there's several instances of Islamophobia um, that's being written in this book. But at the same time, this notion of um, 
Scotland Muslims resilience of its being sort of economically empowered of how they're able to sort of minimize their targets and again uh, this element of race riots haven't existed and I guess I would critique that to some level because um, look at the population proportion. Scotland's Muslim community is 1% of the population. So you don't necessarily have the critical mass available. And when you talk about model minority, often when first generations move to a country, their um, impetus is basically survival. They will adopt survival strategies. So this idea of like hide under the radar, just go, um, put your nose down, get the work done, uh, don't make a scene. It's just all about survival strategies. So the first generation have had to come up with strategies to survive. And it's what we're seeing is the second generation of people who were born and brought up in this country. So whether it's England, whether it's Scotland, who feel that they belong, but they're noticing that actually what something is not right because, you know, if I eat shortbread, drink iron brew and have a Glaswegian accent, then surely I should have the same opportunities as um, anyone else. And what I have found, and I think what Scarlett has found in, um, has been that this actually doesn't apply in practice. People still seem to be excluded. Um, and I know that this idea of like Scotland not being, a, uh, racism not being a Scotland problem has, has sort of permeated the discourse a lot. Um, but I think if you look at things like the Scottish Social Attitude Survey, um, that actually showed that two thirds of people surveyed felt that there was too much immigration. Um, that there was too many Muslims in Scotland, um, that the Running Me Trust report showed that um, over a third of people have experienced some level of discrimination and that people just don't report it. Um, Professor, Professor Sashidaran noted particularly in terms of mental health outcomes, saying that if you were from an ethnic minority group, you're more likely to experience a worse kind of experience. And people feel that because they don't, um, this idea of population density and critical mass, that it's often easier to be like the one person of color um, in a setting, whereas if suddenly there's a hundred people of color, then that's suddenly gonna be an issue to the mainstream. And I think this is why when you talk about model minority, you need to realize this idea of like population density. And actually um, there is a view that um, race equality is going backwards in, in Scotland. So um, there is a trend to silence the voices of people of color. And Neil Davidson's book, um, which came out in 2018, talked about this idea of no problem here. Is that something that we, and it's not just looking at people of color, it's looking at, um, I guess people who tend to be racialized. So uh, Eastern Europeans, Gypsy Roma people, that those people have, uh, maybe Irish to some extent as well, because there's that, that historical issue um, in Scotland between um, uh, Irish and Scots and the Roman Catholics and the Protestants and things like that. So there is these issues of people who tend to be otherized, who have experienced these elements of discrimination. Um, so I think it's almost like this fantasy myth that we kind of allude to that tends to be particularly in this idea of Scottish independence, of wanting to be seen, well, look how backward England is. Um, we actually incorporate, like we're, we're progressive on uh, European migration, we're progressive on LGBT equality, we're progressive on, um, you know, we've got uh, things like the, the NHS free prescriptions and free um, things like that. So it, it, we tend to be a little trying to see ourselves as being more social, social, socialized socialists. Um, and because of that, we're, we're trying to be seen as progressive. But for some reason on race, it's almost like, well, that if we were to say we've got race inequalities, that doesn't necessarily fit with the image that we're presenting um, ourselves to have. Mm -hmm. So you can sort of see why th this, um, these debates take place. And I think um, 
yeah, it, like I said, I'm a fan of Scarlett Harris's work, and I think that she, it's really important to be able to sort of understand and critique this discourse. And I think it's, I think it's a bit of a problem when we say things like um, the economic resilience of the Scottish Muslim community, because I would argue that you know they, they're better educated, so why aren't they getting jobs in the mainstream? Like this is an issue. And also, when you're talking about the Scottish Muslim community, I, I feel quite a lot of the time that's collapsed into Scottish Pakistani. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not talking about the broad experiences of all the different Muslims from all over the world who are living in Scotland. Like right now in the school that I'm working in, it's got a lot of people from Syria. Like not, yeah. not, not all Muslim, but, but a lot of them are. And if we're talking about the Scottish Muslim experience, we need to include them. Like yes. how, is, how is their experience in school and in healthcare and in everyday life? And how is that different to like, Scottish Pakistanis who like now live in Newton Mertens and like Glasgow and like leafy suburbs and have got big like flourishing businesses and have got a big profile they are not the same it's a very yeah. basic thing just like just like you're saying lots of different groups of people being collapsed into one convenient category which yeah. can serve that narrative even even more um so yeah like that is that's the biggest, that's one of the biggest stumbling blocks, isn't it? Isn't it? Like that kind of um, unwillingness to self-reflect and seeing how the, the kind of arrogance that even if we kind of put that to one side and acknowledge a lot of our history, it might not solve everything, but it's a necessary mm. first step to kind of fixing the problems of Islamophobia. And yeah that affect people and hearing your work on experiences in healthcare and in mental health uh, mental mental health care specifically um i think brings that to light so much so thank you so much kareem for like spending that time and, and chatting about that it's like such an education for me and mm. i'm sure for people out there who are, who are listening as well so cheers um i hope hope you had a good time chatting about yeah. stuff yeah, yeah, I'm really glad to have been a guest, and so thank you for inviting me to speak on this. Cheers! Is there, um, if people are looking to find out more about your work, where can they where can they look you up and find out more? Um, so they've got my like Glasgow Uni website and my Edinburgh Uni website, so both of them are available. I've got a few um, articles in press um, that should be coming out in the next month or so, so that would be exciting. Um, and there's also my uh, Twitter profile as well, so that, that there's definitely ways to reach me on social media. Yeah, and we'll we'll definitely put links out there for people to read more um, when those articles come out and any other work that you've got, um, so people can yeah dive into this world of race mental health and healthcare to think about how we solve these issues on that side as well as what we normally do talk about schools and stuff but yeah um healthcare is central and it's so woven in with the school experience so thank you so much and thank you so much to all you amazing listeners as well hope you had a great time and learned a lot just like i did um if you want to find out more please go to our twitter page check us out there um, give us a tweet, give us a retweet and if you want to support our work please go on to Patreon and we would really appreciate it to keep supporting these podcasts and all the other work that we do. So, thank you so much and until next time see you later. Mm-hmm.